Uh, I hope you were blessed by uh, Quentin here last week. Um, and uh, it's always good to trade off that week after Christmas. Gives us both a chance to uh, enjoy Christmas and not be preparing a sermon in the midst of it. So, uh, and thank you so much for the gift that uh, that you contributed to um, for our family. What a blessing that is. Um, we typically uh, take that and use it for a family getaway sometime in February. So we're hoping that that will. Uh, be possible this year, um, but it's such a blessing to be able to say to my kids, um, your church gave you this. Our church loves us, and uh, this is a gift from them, and uh, I, I love that. Uh, I hope my kids grow up loving the church and saying, I'm so glad my dad was a pastor, um, and uh, that's a huge blessing for me, so thank you for that. Uh, well, the, the good news is 2020 is officially in the books. It's done. It's over. <laughs> And I think the unanimous consent is goodbye and good riddance. What a year. What a crazy, ridiculous year. Um, I saw one of the news networks that does a, a poll every year simply asking, was this a good year or a bad year? And uh, typically, um, it, it kind of hovers around 25 to 30% of people say that it was a bad year. Um, this year, uh, record-breaking 70% of people said, bad year. Um, of course, the biggest question raised by that, what, what were the other 30% thinking? Um, they must have bought stocks in Zoom or something along those lines. Um, but uh, as we enter into 2021, uh, we're hopeful, right? Hopeful of a better year to come, right? And uh, I think that's okay. And yet, we probably need to brace ourselves, maybe temper those expectations a little bit. Um, we still live in a fallen broken, sinful world. Not sure if you recall, um, 2019 was not a perfect year either. 2021 uh, is not likely to be. And uh, actually, I suspect most of 2021 is going to be uh, taken up with dealing with the fallout from 2020. It's not like this all just kind of ended Thursday night, though uh, I got a text at four o'clock um, New Year's Eve from my friend in Germany, said, hey, it's 1201 here, COVID has disappeared and been replaced by peace and unity, um, so I was all excited for New Year's to hit, but uh, he was lying, uh, it didn't work that way. Um, tempting as it might be to start this year then with a sermon on understanding the times or how to engage government or any number of topics along those lines. Um, the more I thought about it, the more convinced I was the right way to start off this year um, is the same way we have started off every year since the inception of this church. Um, not looking down at the chaos around us, um, but looking up, taking some time to recognize um, the God that we serve and, uh, and our desperate need to be a praying church. So we're just going to take a break from our series through James for one more week. Uh, and, and, and talk about prayer. Whatever challenges, whatever trials, whatever blessings even lie ahead in the year to come, um, what we need most is not a clearer perspective of this world, but a clearer view of the glory of God. That's what we need. A more intimate, personal, life-giving relationship with him. And so no matter what else happens in 2021, um, if we could accomplish that one goal, it'll be a good year. It'll be a good year. Uh, but that takes work. 
That takes work. Stop and think for a moment. How did you learn to speak? You probably don't remember. Uh, most of us have watched it happen more than we remember it happening to ourselves. Um, we all speak effortlessly now. Um, but speaking is actually a pretty complex skill and not one that you're born with and not one that you learn overnight. It takes work. And uh, we learn it not, not by reading a textbook, not by going to speaking school, but, but by watching, by listening. We spend those early years of our lives looking up at the grown-ups and struggling and fighting and failing. Uh, eventually, we get to kind of make some of the right noises and then begin to string them together in the right connections for very simple words, da-da, mama. Over time, we get up to simple sentences, my do it, shoes on, no. Um, and eventually, we work up to full conversations. Now, let me ask you this. How did you learn to pray? Maybe for some of us, the question is, did you learn to pray? Now, there are plenty of books on prayer, many of them very helpful. I think a few classes on prayer, if you knew where to look. But much like speaking, though we often take prayer for granted, it's actually a pretty complex skill. It's not something most of us just kind of intuitively do, at least not well. But again, like speaking, prayer is something that takes effort and struggle and learning and even failure along the way. I fear that many uh, in the church have, have, have gotten the basics. We, we've learned how to maybe string a couple words together, but, but have never really blossomed into our, our, our ability to really commune with God, to talk with him. Um, our prayer lives aren't, aren't consistent and, and vibrant and life-giving as they should be. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but my guess would be if I was to ask how many uh, here have a, an easy time spending regularly 20, 30 minutes in prayer, um, probably wouldn't be a great show of hands. And I get it. Life is busy. It's hard to find time. It's hard to carve out uh, time in the schedule. But, but what if your, your calendar just magically cleared and you had the time? Would you be comfortable, even able, to spend an hour alone with the Lord in prayer? What would that even look like? How many of our prayer lives are stuck at that level of kind of my do it, shoes on? Uh, and, and, and listen, those, those prayers are loved by the Lord. Right? I want to belittle that. He listens to and cherishes even the simplest and weakest prayers from his beloved children. But we shouldn't be content to stay there. We shouldn't be content to live there. We should be striving and working and struggling to grow in our prayer lives. And again, much like speaking, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is by watching others who do it well, by listening and observing. And that's what I want us to do together this morning. There are many great examples in Scripture of, of great men of God whose prayers are recorded for us, and uh, we can see them. Um, there's a richness there that we can draw from if we have eyes for it. Obviously, um, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, is a, is a great example. Jesus even says, when you pray, pray like this. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're wanting to grow in your prayer life, sit down with Matthew 6 and just 
walk through it line by line. Read a sentence from Jesus and spend some time praying according to those lines yourself. But we've gone over the Lord's Prayer a number of times in the past. This morning, I want us to eavesdrop on another prayer, a somewhat less familiar prayer, a prayer from David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, uh, the one whom God calls a man after my own heart. And so uh, we find this beautiful prayer uh, in the book of First Chronicles. Uh, if you want to turn there, just curious, um, anybody like, yes, First Chronicles, that's my favorite book. I love First Chronicles. Yeah, me neither. Um, but it's God's word, and it's rich, and there are gems there if we're able to dig them out. First uh, Chronicles 17, um, starting with verse 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew in front of you. Just encourage you to grab that. And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own or one that you can read easily, um, take that one. It's yours. We want you to have it as a gift from us. Um, but uh, we're going to look at First uh, Chronicles 17, uh, verses 16 down to 27. Just for context here, um, David had just brought the Ark of the Covenant, the, 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 the symbol of God's abiding presence into Jerusalem, the brand new capital, the newly overtaken capital of Jerusalem. And, uh, and uh, there was this great celebration. They're singing and feasting. And, and God gave David then what we call the Davidic Covenant, his promise to David that he would raise up after David uh, a great king, one who would rule and bring peace. This promise that we talked about over Christmas, um, God bringing a ruler to reign on David's throne forever. And, and this prayer is David's response to that amazing promise. So um, we're going to look at this just piece at a time. Um, let me pray and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word and that it is... Um, recorded for us in black and white. We can study it and learn it, um, but that it is also living and active and that it um, discerns, that it cuts to the heart. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see um, your glorious truth this morning. Lord, with all the chaos and confusion and frustration around us, make us a people of prayer. God, would you teach us to pray, we ask. Help us to, to grow into a more meaningful, um, richer, life-giving communion with you, um, that our eyes may be fixed on your glory. Lord, um, we are weak and helpless. We need you. Would you be at work in us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So First Chronicles. 17, starting in verse 16. Just go down to verse 19 for this first section. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant, for you know your servant, for your sake, O Lord, for your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. As we 
eavesdrop on David and try to learn from his relationship with the Lord, I think one of the first things we see here is that prayer is dependence. It's dependence. Verse 16 is this beautiful statement that I think so easily goes unnoticed. David went in and sat before the Lord. Elsewhere in Scripture, prayer is always standing, kneeling, maybe falling on the face. Um, As far as I can think and as far as I can find, this is the only place other than Jesus himself in Hebrews, after he's resurrected, he sits in the heavenly presence of the Father. But in an earthly sense, I think this is the only place where someone sits in the presence of the Lord. And it may be that the Hebrew there doesn't mean literally sitting, but rather dwelling, lingering, waiting. The meaning's the same. David just wants to be in God's presence. He longs to be there, to stay there. That's the heart of prayer, right? Whatever else you think about prayer, whatever goal you have for for prayer, um, it's intimacy with God. That's what we're after. Steal from Jesus, John 15, um, we could say David went in to abide with the Lord, just to be with him. Um, Why? Why does he do that? Why does David want so desperately to go in and just sit, just be with the Lord? We quickly see it's because of David's dependence on God. He is desperate for the Lord. He says, Lord, who am I? Who am I? What is my house that that, that you have brought me this far? God, what do I have? What have I brought to this equation? And you have done all these great things. You've even spoken now of future generations. I'm a nobody. I, I can't do this. I don't have this. Now, let's be clear on what David could have said, right? If you know David, David could have said, I get it, God. I know why you chose me. I am rugged and handsome. Even as a, as a young boy, I was killing bears and lions to protect my father's sheep. I'm a warrior like Israel has never known. I have 30 men who have each killed hundreds and some thousands in battle, and they call me their leader. They look up to me. They follow me. I'm a poet like Israel has never known. I have written countless songs and prayers and psalms to your glory. I am the man after your own heart, God. I got this. I can do this. I won't let you down, God. That's not what David says. David recognizes what Paul will later say in in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything he has. His whole pedigree is a gift from God that God has graciously given him. And he sees that. Every good thing, every promise that God has made is not because of David's goodness or some ability or or worth that David has. It's purely out of the generosity of God. And he comes humble and dependent on the Lord. Lord, you did this. Who am I without you? Who am I that you've treated me so kindly? Look at the end of uh, of verse 18 and into verse 19. He says, uh, For you know your servant, 
For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. Isn't that what we just so desperately want? To be known? To be truly, completely known and still loved? God, you knew me. Not the fake me. Not the me that I put on that I want other people to see. You knew the real, faulty, broken, messed up, sinful me. And for my sake, and get this, from your own heart, you blessed me. David sees and knows his unworthiness, his neediness before the Lord, and God's generous, loving, kind heart toward him. It's a terrifying thing to ask, why don't we pray? Or what does our lack of prayer say about us? Let me ask you this, does a, does a drowning man have any trouble calling for help? I mean, other than the water in his mouth, no. Everything in him wants to scream out, help me, save me, somebody rescue me. He's desperate, and he screams out. What about the man who's just struggling? He's just a little bit tired. He's getting by. He's pretty sure he can make it on his own. That man is not calling for help. The last thing that man wants is to draw attention to himself, right? He's just going to struggle through, head down. I'm sure I can make it. His biggest concern is actually that, that nobody notices, that nobody sees. Our lack of prayer puts on display this fact that, that we believe we're the second man. We don't see ourselves as hopeless and drowning. We do not believe that we are desperate for God, that we need him or we die. We're pretty sure we can make it on our own. We're pretty sure we've got at least 90% of what it takes. And maybe we just need a little nudge from God along the way. Just a little bit of help here and there. We don't pray because we don't understand the depth of our desperate need for him. The desperate position that we are in before the Lord. Um, David, uh, again, um, is, is echoed later by Paul, Romans 7. Paul says... For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And down to verse 24, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. We must first understand that we are in this desperate situation before the Lord. And based on what we've done based on our own strength, we deserve nothing but hell. Based on our own ability, our sin will destroy us. The only hope that we have of, of anything else is this one-sided work of God to reach down and rescue us and pull us out in Jesus Christ. And that's not just for, for our, our salvation from, from hell to heaven. This is about everyday life. This is, this is day to day. The only hope I have of not destroying my marriage, of not destroying these children that God has entrusted to me or the relationships around me, the only hope I have of, of overcoming the sin that, that plagues me, that I battle with, the only hope I have of, of remaining steadfast through times of, of trial and trouble, the only hope I have of not train wrecking this life is that generous grace of God. 
I, I am not in some epic fight with my sin, and I'm, you know, I've been hit. I'm, in, you know, I'm down but not out like Rocky Balboa. I'm going to come back as long as I'm strong enough and pull myself up. I can do it. That's not it. It's not it. I'm not even the drowning man. In fact, Ephesians says, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Ezekiel says, I had a heart of stone. I had already gone under, lungs filled with water, heart stopped, brain activity gone, and he reached down and gave me life. David understood his depth of dependence on the Lord. And good news, the Lord's loving kindness toward us, his generous, gracious heart. He says, for my sake and according to your own heart, you saved me. You gave me life. You made me your child. You gave me hope of a glorious future. And it's all his ongoing work in my life. And he loves to do it. And so I'm desperate to sit in his presence. Not, not an optional bonus, right? Like this is not like the, the protein powder in your milkshake uh, or smoothie or whatever it is. This, this is. this is the air in my lungs and the blood in my veins. I need it for life. We have to repent of our prayerlessness and the pride and the self-idolatry that it betrays. Run to him in desperation. Prayer is a display of our dependence on him. We ought to feel that deeply? Do you long to, to sit in the presence of the Lord? Do you feel your, your frailty and your hopelessness without him? Because that is your reality. And that ought to bring us daily to our knees in that dependent, desperate prayer. Prayer is dependence. And then looking at verses 20 to 22, uh, prayer is worship. David goes on to say, There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went out to redeem to be his people, making for himself a name for great and awesome things, in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. Dependence and worship are, are really just two sides of one coin, right? Worship is the expression uh, of his worth. To say that he is that thing that we are so dependent upon. He is what we need. Prayer can be summed up in this way. Um, we are needy and he is worthy. We're needy and he is worthy. It's dependence and worship. Our dependence, our neediness is fully supplied, is satisfied in who he is. And so David so naturally moves from his dependence on God to this display of worship for God. First, he worships God for who he is. Verse 20. This is one of those just quintessential statements of worship that's repeated uh, over and over again throughout the Old Testament. David says, there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. You're unique, God. You are absolutely, individually unique in your character and, and who you are. 
There's no one who comes even close to being like you. And then verse 21, he shifts. He, he first worships God for who he is, and then he worships God for what he has done. You are this great God. You, you're the one who rescued Israel out from their captivity to Egypt. You're the one who, who knocked out these nations and paved the way for them to be brought into the nation of Israel. You're the one who made them your people and made yourself their God. These are just two very basic, helpful headings as we sit down to pray. Worship him for who he is. Worship him for what he's done. And yet, simple as this is, church, this idea of worship-filled prayer, that was revolutionary in my prayer life. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Like I said, we, we learn to pray by watching and listening. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that means we learn to pray poorly. We so typically think of prayer um, primarily, maybe even exclusively, as asking God for things. That's what prayer is, we think. And don't misunderstand me. That, that is a good and right part of prayer. I'm not saying we should stop asking God for things. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but that's not ultimate. That's not the highest purpose of our prayer. And and when, when it becomes ultimate or even primary, um, our prayer becomes a hollow shell of what it was intended to be. Think about it. Put yourself in the place of a father. Do you love to give your son good gifts? Absolutely. That's the glory of the father, to, to lavish his son with, with good gifts. But if that son decides he doesn't, he doesn't care about the father anymore. He doesn't want anything to do with his father. He just wants the gifts. The only time he ever speaks with his father is to bring him his list of demands. God, father, give me these things and leave me alone. That's all I want. The father's not honored in that. And, and notice, in your own mind, your opinion of the son just plummeted. That's not an emotionally healthy functioning individual, right? That's not okay. Why? Because he sacrificed the greater thing, the, the relationship with his father, in order to gain the lesser thing, the, the gifts from his father. How much more so with God? Our ultimate need is not things from God. Our ultimate need is God himself. It's intimacy with God. True prayer, meaningful, vibrant, life-giving prayer doesn't just run after God's gifts, but after God himself. And we do that when our prayers are filled with worship, when we seek God's face before we seek what's in God's hand. When we find ourselves desperately dependent on him, desiring to just come and sit and be in his presence and worship him. Many of us keep lists of things that we're praying for, there's nothing wrong with that. So long as intimacy with God, knowing him, being enamored with him and his glory is at the top of that list and bleeds down through every line. Don't let requests crowd out relationship. And I'll tell you, this is, this is where my prayer life was stuck for years. Anemic, atrophied, frankly dull and draining. Because it wasn't this, this life-giving, abiding with the Lord and being in his presence, being 
filled with him. Uh, it was just dropping off this list and then trying to make enough awkward small talk to make it feel like I wasn't just after his gifts. Whatever else we think we need in prayer, what we truly need in any and every situation is, is to see the Lord for who he is. To see him in his glory and majesty, to be reminded again of his power and his sovereignty, to have our hearts lifted up in worship of the one true God. Psalm 73, David prays this, Whom have I in heaven on you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that. He's my portion. He's my full plate. That's all I need. It's not just David who prays this way. Remember Jesus' prayer? When you pray, pray like this. And then what does he say first? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whatever it is you're facing, in the battle against your sin, what you need most is a clearer view of who God is. The fullness of joy and satisfaction that are found in him. A fearful place of being in need. What we need most is to be reminded that he's sovereign over all. His goodness is unfailing to rehearse again the times that he has come through and provided in the past. God himself is what our souls truly need. Take time this week. If it means you don't make it to your prayer list, that's okay. Put that aside for a bit if that needs to happen. Seek the Lord. Spend time with him in, in dependence on him and worship of him. And make that the first and primary part of your time in prayer. If you find that difficult after about 30 seconds, welcome to the club, right? Like prayer is hard, remember? Prayer is something that you have to learn. You didn't go from mama to writing an essay overnight. You had to learn. We have to grow. And this kind of prayer is particularly hard because you suddenly realize you can't just, you can't just mail it in. You can't just get it done because it's not a task. It's not a set of words you need to say. It's actually emotionally investing. It takes humility and quieting yourself before the Lord. It takes vulnerability before the Lord. It takes spontaneity. It's not just a, a transaction of you informing God of what you need. It's this seeking a deep, meaningful relationship with him. Back to this principle of learning by listening. This is the number one reason that no matter what Bible reading plan I'm doing, um, I've got a bookmark in the Psalms. I've got to have something in the Psalms as a, as a helper. Um, the Psalms are this beautiful gift to the church as a book of, of prayers and songs of worship inspired by God himself. It's this rich, beautiful guide, and, and we ought to rely on that. I wrestled. My prayer life was empty and hollow for years. I think there was a season of uh, of months, if not a year, where the, the totality of my prayer was basically, Lord, teach me to pray. I'm stuck. And eventually, I just took a year. I, kicked, I, I canned my Bible reading plan in like mid-January and said, I'm not doing anything but read the Psalms. And I just spent a year digging through the Psalms 
and, and letting that be the prayers that I didn't have um, and, and, and following that. And you'll find it's full of beautiful accounts of worship, of, of God's glorious attributes and his mighty victories in the past. It's a beautiful help, a guide for us. Um, read it, use it. So I just encourage you, take time. Again, do it this afternoon and make it a regular part of your prayer life and, and open the Bible up to, to a psalm and just read a line and make that your prayer. Let that be a regular part of your prayer life. It's there with your Bible open in worshipful prayer before the Lord um, that you will find life and breath for your soul. We need it. Prayer is dependence on the Lord and prayer is worship of the Lord. And looking at verses 23 to 27, flowing out of that, that dependence and worship, it is absolutely right that prayer is asking from the Lord. Um, let me read, uh, starting in verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do what you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you for you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Prayer is also asking from the Lord. Just like the, the earthly father-son relationship, um, when that relationship is healthy and thriving, when the son adores his father and just loves to spend time with him, uh, then it is both the father's pleasure and the father's glory uh, to, to lavish these good things on his son. When we seek only his hand, when we seek only his gifts, we may well miss his face. But when we seek his face, he will be delighted to open his hand as well. Notice how David asks. Notice what David prays here. The way that he prays allows him to pray with confidence and expectation. There, there are two keys just right up front of this. Um, look first at, at what David prays for. He very carefully, deliberately prays for exactly what God had promised. Look at verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. Do it, God. Do what you've promised. And then down in, in verse 25, um, that's, that's why he can say, therefore, your servant has courage to pray before you. I can come to God and ask with, with confidence and, and courage because you've promised it. He prays for God to do what God has already promised. Sounds very much like 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, 
We know that we have the request that we ask of him. How do, how do we have confidence? How do we know that we'll receive what we ask? Well, we ask according to his will. How do we know we're asking according to his will? Well, we pray according to what he's revealed. Part of the problem with our, our prayer list mentality is that we come to God with the underlying assumption that, that we are about to inform him and tell him what's important. We're going to let God know how he should rule the universe. God, hear me bring this to your attention. You should be dealing with this. You must have overlooked it or missed it. You're doing it wrong. The truth is it's the opposite that ought to be taking place. When prayer is marked by our de desperate dependence on him and our worship of him, it's saturated in his word. It's not so much about him coming to see things our way as it is us coming to see things his way. And as you're reading God's word, just let that shape and form the way you pray. Let that bleed into your prayers. And the more our prayers are shaped by God's promises and God's word, the less time we're going to spend on things like the events on our calendar and the simple health or healing or personal physical needs. Why? Those things are not ultimate to the Lord. Those things are not the primary concern. The more our prayers are formed and shaped by God's promises and God's word, um, the more we're going to pray for things like holiness, our personal sanctification and growth, for transformation and growth in our faith, for, for the salvation of lost souls, for the, the unity and purity of the church. The tone and focus of your prayer will shift. And that feels dangerous, doesn't it? Even threatening. And the reason that feels so dangerous is because we have this, this tension inside of us. Frankly, we're not fully convinced that what God prioritizes is actually best. It's hard to trust that maybe sanctification through suffering would be a better answer to prayer than just healing. It's hard to believe that maybe learning to trust him more would be a better answer to my prayer than just a job right now. That's a scary thing. Now, I don't want you to take this too far. I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask God for those things or that the Lord may not even be pleased to answer those prayers. Pour out your heart to him. If it's, if it's worrying you and concerning you, bring it to him. But as we grow in maturity, I think the emphasis of our prayers grows in reflecting God's priorities and that the things that weigh on our hearts uh, are more and more the things that weigh on his heart. And we get more a view of his priorities than simply our short-sighted worldly priorities. That's what David prays for, the things that, that God has already promised. But notice also why he prays for it. What's David's motivation here? What's driving it? Verse 23, he prays, God, do what you've promised, fulfill your plan. And then look at verse 24. And your name will be established and magnified forever. This is the key to uniting the worship of God, our, our ultimate need to see him as he is with these requests that we have and the, and the things that we ask from him. 
We ask, Lord, would you do this? Would you provide that? But we don't stop there. There's two little words that change everything. So that. So that. David prays, do this and or so that your name will be established and magnified forever. Even our prayers for the simplest worldly provision are are transformed into prayers for our highest ultimate need with those two words, so that. God, would you provide a job for my husband so that through your provision, your name would be magnified, so that through your providing, we would see your glory and be even more enamored and in love with you. God, would you heal my uncle so that your glory would put on display, so that my aunt would come to trust in you. Those two words, so that we admit that that these are lesser requests and we kind of hold those in a little more of an open hand and, and we keep our hearts focused on the infinitely greater need that we have, our need to see the Lord, to see him in his glory. And often, God gently condescends to our weakness He gives us our greater need, the need to see him more clearly by answering our lesser needs of temporal, worldly provision. And sometimes in his wisdom, he withholds those lesser needs and he fulfills that greater so that by another means. And so we ask, we pour out our hearts, our anxieties, our concerns for the Lord, um, and we ask for, for all manner of things, but we ask him to answer those prayers for the purpose of our highest prayer, that we might see him more, that we might be more in love with him, that we might follow him more closely. Not that we might be satisfied or distracted in worldly things, but that our hearts would be lifted up all the more to the one thing we truly need to see our dependence on him, to stand in awe and wonder of his immeasurable glory. Because that's the prayer that he delights to answer. Our prayers of of dependence on him, our prayers of worship for him, and our prayers of asking from him so that we might depend on him and deepen our worship for him all the more. A few minutes, we're going to take communion together. We're going to join in worshiping him for what he has done in our salvation. But before we do that, um, I just want to carve out some time right now and spend some time in prayer. Just you and the Lord individually where you're seated. Let's just use this prayer of David uh, as our guide. And and I'll give you a couple of cues along the way, and and we'll just take a few minutes here. Um, Let me just invite you first to take a couple of minutes Just sit before the Lord. Just quiet your heart. Be still before him. Why don't you just go ahead and take a couple of minutes where you're at. 